I guess the, the best lesson that I've learned is that I have found, because I used to be really impatient all the time. Come on, we gotta go, go, go. I gotta sell this copy machine. We gotta go, 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 come on. That's what's the sales world for me. And I was always in a hurry. And what I've learned from being on Everest is you need to be patient. You need to be thoughtful. You need to be a really good listener. And that's one of the best, most valuable lessons I learned. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast with your blacksmiths, Tara O'Brien and Ron Duran Jr. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. It's time to harden up. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. I met Brooke Chestnut as we were we were basically both uh, kind of finding our way. I was a business coach at the time, and I know that Brooke was working as a consultant, a generational consultant. And what that what that means is. Brooke specializes in bringing together, I believe, it's it's five generations that we have. It's, it's kind of a special time in history that we have so many generations in, in the workforce at one time. And so his specialty, uh, where he does a lot of his consulting and coaching, is to help people kind of navigate how do we communicate with the different generations. So that's how I met Brooke. And so today in our podcast, we have a wide-ranging discussion uh, Brooke has been on, or he's climbed uh, five of the seven summits, so he's got some mountaineering experiences and, and some great stories to interweave in there. And then we also, of course, are going to take a little bit of a path down this idea of, of the generational workforce and how we can do better at that, and and how that you know that that's a difficult thing. And I think that you'll see that that fits well with our podcast talking about mental toughness, resilience, and grit. So without any more of me running my mouth, let's listen in on today's discussion with Brooke Chestnut. Let's start this conversation with what's exciting to, I think, both Tara and I. And I know, Brooke, I think we've talked about this before of kind of an interesting story. How did you get into climbing big mountains and and why do you do that? (laughs) Huh. Well, thank you for asking. I was born and raised in Northern California, just north of San Francisco in Marin County. Mom and dad had a house up at Lake Tahoe. I learned how to ski at an early age, but I grew up there in the 60s and the 70s. And then in the late 70s, as I was going into junior college, I needed to finish college. And I just walked through the counseling office and what I saw on a brochure was the picture that you see behind me. And I moved to Boulder in 1979 to finish college. In that process, I had to spend one summer semester here in Boulder to finish and get my degree. And because I spent one summer semester here in Boulder, I've been here for 45 years. Of course. <laughs> That's how it happens. <laughs> That's how it happens. And so before I had children, my friend uh, Dave Braun and I decided that we would go and climb two 14ers and we climbed Gray's and Tories. And I will never forget going up. We went up Gray's Peak first and going up and going up and going up. And I'm getting all excited. And then I get to the top and I had this euphoric 
chill through my entire body that this is something I need to do more of. And over the course of two to three decades, I completed all the 14ers in the state of Colorado, which are some are pretty easy and some are extremely difficult, but great experience. And that's how I got interested after I read the book, The Seven Summits, okay, by Dick Bass and Frank Wells. I just read the book because I thought it was a great book. And then <laughs> I went to Africa with my wife at the time and two other couples and we wanted to go on safari and do all this stuff, but we also decided that we would climb Kilimanjaro on an expedition with a, with, a, with a group of people. And, you know, it took us four or five days, whatever, but we made it and we're taking pictures and everything's cool. And we're starting to walk down descending Kilimanjaro. And I turned to my two friends who were there with their wives. And I said, you know, we just climbed one of the seven summits of the world. Are you guys interested in doing the other six? And they and that's looked, how it starts. They looked at their wives intensely. Didn't say a word, just looked at them. Honey, can I have permission? <laughs> and they got permission and that's what started the quest for doing the seven summits. See now, I, I know the Seven Summits, so I'm I'm very curious. I, Kilimanjaro is the only one I've ever been on as well. That's about as far as I got. Altitude sickness does not like me. But what were what order did you do the next handful? I'm just so curious. After Kilimanjaro, after we, where did you go after that? Yeah, after we did Kilimanjaro, we decided to go to South America and to the country of Argentina to climb Aconcagua, which is three to four thousand feet higher than Kilimanjaro, and that was a three-week expedition, beautiful country, beautiful mountain, very exciting to get to the top of Aconcagua. And then we decided that we would do the highest peak in North America, which of course is Denali. And there were six of us on the Aconcagua climb, but when it comes to Denali and what has to happen there is there were just three of us that decided to go and do that. And um, that was in 1980, no, hold on, no, no, 2008. It was 2008 when we went and did Denali. And that is a three-week expedition. And like I had said, you've got, you've got some guides, but there's no Sherpa. So each climber has to be take. you know, you're, you're basically taking a sled that weighs 90 pounds and you've got a pack that weighs 75 to 80 pounds. And you're, using, you're just going up a glacier with other people tied to a rope, hoping to be successful. Hoping. And you have kind of a crazy story behind that, uh, or at least a challenging one. I mean, Denali in and of itself is challenging, but what happened on that mountain? Yeah, we went there in the month of May, which is the earliest part of the year, and everything seemed to be fine because we get to Camp 3 at 14,000 feet, and everything seems to be fine. And then, oh my gosh, a blizzard that lasted for six days and nights, just clobbers camp three. And we're basically trying to stay warm and fed. 
and everything's freezing around us and you can't go outside, you, you can't eat hot food, you can't go to the bathroom. I mean, all of these things are really mounting up and it's just a huge blizzard. And so we made it through it. And there were four people that were up higher than us on Camp 4 during this time. And they came down and they were close to being dead. And they helicoptered them out. And when the other people on our team saw that, they all raised their hand and said, we're done. I don't need to do this. And that's when I wanted to go to each tent and talk to each person about what we committed to and why we're here and how well we've done so far. We survived the blizzard and we've got a little bit more to do and we're, we're, we're gonna make this, it's gonna, it's gonna happen. And I was being as positive as possible and it, it worked. They decided that we would go to camp four and that's the high camp. You summit from that camp. We got there, summit day came and there were only three of us with the guides that made it to the summit. And then wow. turned around and went back and we did it just in time or else they were gonna cancel us because our three weeks were up. But we've got the pictures to prove it. There's a little silver medallion at the very summit and it's from the National Geographic Institute and it tells you the mountaintop, the elevation, all that stuff. And I just went up and touched it with my, with my glove. And that's how I, that's how we finished Denali. That's amazing. So, so here we are six days and six nights of a storm. You know, the people that wanted to quit, they probably had a, you know, they probably had a legitimate case. Don't you think Brooke? They did. So, so what is it that, I mean, when you're in that moment, did you ever think maybe they're right? Maybe we should quit now? Or was this just easy for you to say, you know what? No. Uh, there's no, it, quit is not an option right now. It and never that, entered my mind. I okay. knew that we had gotten there. I knew we, we seemed like we're gelling as a team. We've got two good guides with us. The food was really good, but be hunkered down that long and you're trying, you everything's wet and you have to lie on your sleeping bag in your tent and put your wet socks on your skin so that they dry out for your boots. Wow. Things like that is what I remember most. And then going to the bathroom was nearly impossible on that trip. But no, it never entered my mind that we would not continue. Huh. We still had time. So how does that how does that conversation start? So you go to the you go to each person and I, I mean, talked what, about well I, I talked about how how well we did. I mean look how we got here in ten days. I mean look at us. We're so far ahead of schedule. We got up here. We took all this weight. We're coming together. Our team is energized. And we got a little bit of snow here. Okay, <laughs> we can get through this. And here's how we're going to do it. And I was just being extremely passionate about the task. How old were you, Brooke, when, when you made that, that summit? I just turned 50. You had just turned 50. Okay. 2008. 2008. That's amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. But what have you ever analyzed or could you just tell us if you know, without analysis, what makes you in this instance behave that way when so many other people are looking for permission to quit and they found it with the, the higher camp coming down and being evacuated and what makes you jump out of your tent after a week of getting slammed with snow? You can't go to the bathroom. You're trying to eat and keep things down. And you're like, heck yeah, I'm going to go out there and motivate everybody to keep going up. Why? 
Why? Because of something I experienced early on in my life. The year was 1982. I had graduated from college and I was working in Boulder at a restaurant. And these two gentlemen came in for lunch and I launched, after they had lunch, I launched into this presentation from the heart about the dessert special of the day. <laughs> and I was so engrossed in it. The one guy stops me, he says, hold on, you need to come down to our company because I think you could sell copy machines. Oh boy. And I go, no, thank you. Do you want the dessert or not? They ordered it, came back two more times. This is 1982, I'm 24 years old. And they convinced me to leave the restaurant job in Boulder, put on a suit and tie and join their company selling copy machines in Denver in 1982. What was I thinking? <laughs> it was the most horrible job I've ever had. I got my head beat in every day as a copier salesman on the street. And I lasted two and a half, almost three years. And then a guy named Fred Crivler turned out to be my mentor, my manager. He sits me down. He says, Brooke, this job is not about selling copy machines or the commission or anything like that. What this is about, this is about you developing relationships that are meaningful, that build trust, and the rest will follow. That was the most amazing advice I've ever had. And I spent the next 28 years selling copy machines. Wow, really? I would never working, have guessed that. Working in the city of Boulder for 12 years, and then I moved, they moved me to the Springs for a bigger opportunity for 16 years. And I recruited, I mentored, I hired all these young people to help them be focusing on building relationships. And all those young people are all way more successful than me, but that's how it got started. And so when I come up against failure and I come up against odds and total horrible conditions, I think about what I learned. And we built relationships with these team members so that they trusted us. And I believe that's what got us to summit Denali. Now, oh, now how many people would ever make the connection from climbing Denali to selling copiers? <laughs> <laughs> and then later, which is today, acting as a, a teacher at the university for business courses, but also, more importantly, as a consultant with corporations and businesses, especially working around business culture and multi-generational issues, which I know we want to talk about. Correct. But first, before we go there, let's talk about the next, maybe not the next big mountain, but the big mountain. I know you do a lot of uh, speeches about Everest. Yes. And that is, that's, that's the big one. Everest is a big one. So we finished Denali. We did Elbrus in Russia. We did Vincent in Antarctica, and number six, of course, was going to be Mount Everest. The year was 2018. Hmm. We left March 22nd, 2018. I had just turned 60 years old oh my gosh. on that one. I was by far the oldest person on the, the group there. There were 34 people who were part of our climbing team. By the time we got to camp number three, there were only eight remaining. 
Wow. However, the beauty of Everest is you get this, you get to be teamed up with this Sherpa from Nepal. And this guy, his name was Tunong, was phenomenal. Just amazing patience and grit and just great knowledge and just great leadership. He didn't speak very good English, but anyway, we teamed up and, you know, it's, it's a 10-week deal. It's 10 weeks. So I, I don't know where you want me to go with the Everest story, but to get, when you fly from Kathmandu and you land in Lukla, Nepal, it takes you three, two and a half to three weeks just to get to base camp, which is at 18,000 feet. And then from there, you're going to camp one, two, three, and then camp four is in position to summit. And it takes another, you know, five weeks to do that. And all you do is go up and down every day. It's not as nearly as bad as Denali. Wow. You get great food. You got a Sherpa. You can carry some stuff, you know. And, you know, we have all these young guys that are on our team and they're just killing it. I'm, I'm always coming in later on, you know. But. I know how that feels coming in later on. Coming in later on. You know, these young guys are looking pretty strong and all that good stuff. But anyway, I just was in my zone and I was just going to, I didn't have any friends with me. I, I went solo and just the journey from Lukla all the way up to base camp, just those journeys is just awesome to go to these little villages and be part of these little family kitchens and where they cook you all this great Nepalese food. And then, you know, it, it was just phenomenal culture experience. You make it sound fun. Oh, it's fun until you start getting up on the ice fall and you start going up, you know, cliffs with ropes and then going over ladders that are going like this between huge crevasses. It's pretty amazing country. But, you know, we, they'd get us up at 2.30 in the morning so that we could go from base camp to camp one and get through the ice fall before the sun hits it. Because when that happens, the ice will shift and could crush you in an instant. Yeah, the Kumbu Icefall is, when I read about Everest, that's the part that would scare the living daylights out of me. <laughs> it's the most dangerous part of the entire climb. Yeah. Is what they say. And we went through it 14 times. Jeez. Unreal. That's amazing. <laughs> well, all right, Brooke, I'm going to grab you and just lead you right to where I want to go. What was the obstacle you ran into? As you were attempting to climb this mountain, the highest mountain in the world, what turned you back? Tell us about that story. Um, successfully made it to camp one, successfully made it to camp two, which is at 21,000 feet. And then from camp number two, the next camp is camp three. And that's right on the load sea face. I mean, you're right perched on this cliff at 25,000 feet. And there were only eight of us. And out of the eight, I came, I was the third climber to get to that camp with all these other people dragging in. And when we got there, these, these two young guys are there. They're going, Brooke, I can't believe you're here. I can't believe it. Will you be my tent mate? I was feeling <laughs> part of the team and loved by these younger guys because I was by far the oldest guy. And so I'm there, I room with this guy. Everything's fine. We wake up the next morning. My Sherpa is down over here somewhere and I'm having a huge issue with my crampons and my boots. 
And so what I did really quickly, I thought, as I took my gloves off for maybe 45 seconds to maybe a minute at that elevation to tighten everything with my fingers, put my gloves back on, everything's fine. We go back down to camp two for one day. On the second day, I take my gloves off and look and the tips of these four fingers had turned black. Yeah, not what you want to see. Not, not what you want to see. Didn't hurt. Not a big deal. Wasn't a big deal. We're headed to base camp. So I just, I got to base camp. I said, well, I'm going to go see the, those guys. And they'll, they'll fix me up. We're going to be here for five days. We're going to be fine. So the doctor looks at me and he says, I'm sorry, but you need to leave right now. Hmm. And I looked at him with my Sherpa there. I said, no, you're going to fix me so that I can summit this mountain in the next five days. Okay. And he goes, hold on. And he goes back. He gets a picture from a guy the year before who had the same thing as me, who chose not to leave. And he had lost all four of those fingers and all three of those because he did not leave the mountain. And when I saw that, I simply crumpled into this ball of mush and depression and crying and you name it, I was defeated because I could not go home to see my children without my fingers. So I had to hire a helicopter to come and pick me up from Kathmandu, pick me up at base camp and fly me back to, to Kathmandu. Put me up in a hotel for four days while the medical people worked on my fingers. And then I had to charter my own flight and chartered it and went back home and got home. And over time, everything was fine. I've got everything here, but these four fingers are definitely damaged. Mm. And I can feel it when I ski. I can feel it when I don't have enough, when I don't have the right um, gloves and stuff like that, which, you know, I knew was going to happen. But I'm still in one piece. And the lessons I have learned are phenomenal. And the one lesson that I want every mountaineer to know, whenever you go on a trip like that and it's that expensive, you buy a $2,800 insurance policy. Okay. Because the last 18 days of the trip, which I missed, guess who got a refund on all those days and who paid for my chopper from Kathmandu and paid for my first class flight back to the States. I almost got a whole third of the money back that I spent because so, of the insurance. Aside from insurance, tell us about some of these lessons that you've learned from doing hard things on, on high up mountains and terrible conditions and the lessons you've learned from having to give in and turn around and go back. I guess the, the best lesson that I've learned is that I have found, because I used to be really impatient all the time. Come on, we got to go, go, go. I got to sell this copy machine. We got to go, go, go. Come on. That's what's the sales world for me. And I was always in a hurry. And what I've learned from being on Everest is you need to be patient. You need to be thoughtful. You need to be a really good listener. And that's one of the best, most valuable lessons I learned. Listening to the Sherpa, listening to the other climbers, listening to the lead guides, and really doing the things that they're telling me to do. Whereas before, 
you know, I just do my own thing. So I feel like that was a really valuable lesson. And that's what I'm saying today in corporate America. No one's listening. Remember, folks, two of these and one of those. So you should be listening twice as much as you speak, period. Do you think that happens? No, it doesn't. But so that's one of the most valuable lessons. The other one is have, Brooke, have patience. I'm really an impatient guy. And I became really patient. And I would go with slower people than me. And I would just take my time and be a mentor, be a coach, be a, um, a facilitator of goodwill and also good health. And it all comes back around and it pays dividends. And I feel better now than I've ever felt. That's, that's a tough, that's a tough sell for, you know, those type A personalities, those people, those go-getters, especially the younger generations. And we're going to get into talking about generations here, but those people that are, that are still trying to you know make their mark. I was a very impatient young man as well. And, and I feel like a lot of the younger folks are impatient. So how do we get that message through to them to just slow down, pause, have patience. Things will turn out the way they're supposed to. How do we get that message through to them? Because I don't know if I would have listened very well when I was 25. What do you say right. to that? Well, kids, I mean, when I say kids, I'm talking about millennials. I have two millennial daughters, 34 years old and 31 years old. And then there's also this Generation Z coming up behind the millennials. And all of the, the millennials and Gen Z, they are so digitally connected. They want instantaneous gratification with their devices with their Instagram, with their Snapchat, with their laptops, whatever it is. Would you agree with that? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't want to that's, generalize, but yes. That's, but that's how it is. And so we, as, as a boomer, I look at all this, and it, it just it's so distracting to me that they are so uh, distracted by this electronic technology. But does that make it wrong, do you think, Brooke? It doesn't make it wrong, okay? Because in a position of leadership, and you've got this young new recruit with all this talent, and they turn in their first report or journal, whatever it is, they turn it into you, the, the leader, and you say, thanks so much. I'll get back to you on it. And they don't do it until their 30, 60, or 90-day review. Well, guess what, folks? Those days are over. These young people want acknowledgement immediately. So you send them a snippet on their, on, their, on, their, on their cell phone. Hey, I got the report, looks good. We'll talk soon, thanks. Just a snippet of acknowledgement. Taking the time to give them feedback. That is what I think builds a connection between my generation and them. And then they start to trust. And when they trust, they open up and we can break the handcuffs that they sometimes have as they start as a new, a new employee and they have their own autonomy. And we got to give them the ability to do something spectacular, spontaneous, come up with an idea or a concept we've never thought of, which means the leadership, the mentorship has to listen better. And I mean, really listen better. 
Well, what are your thoughts? Uh, we've talked a little bit offline about the the fact that you really feel that the the workforce today is, and I quote from you, toxic. And I don't disagree with you, but I'm I'm curious. Uh, and in fact, I can throw in a real life situation that didn't happen all that long ago, where my personal CEO of a company that I used to work for literally said to me when I said, we've got to work on professional development and personal development and purpose and meaning for our younger employees. And the CEO said back to me, Tara, why should I care if they're getting development or if they're happy or if they're finding meaning and purpose? What do you think about that? And what are you seeing? Is it something along those lines? What are you seeing in the workforce that makes it uh, seem toxic to you? Because today, according to a a seasoned specialist from the United Kingdom, Roderick Yap, he wrote an article about the top six characteristics of toxic leadership. And one of those characteristics is narcissism. Mm. The leader doesn't feel any empathy at all for his employees And he wants everything for himself or herself. And they continue that, which is why this gentleman replied, I don't really care. I'm in charge. Let's do our jobs. And he'll walk away with all the profits or money, whatever he wants. And today, that's not going to make it. And what's happened, and this is what this statistic I was going to share with you, is that in four years from today, 2025, the millennials will be turning 45 years of age, okay, mid-40s. They're saying that three out of every four workers, 75% of the workforce will be made up of millennials and Gen Z. Mm. Only 25% will be made up of Gen X and uh, boomers. So, Mr. CEO, if you don't create a foundation or a culture or some sort of successful place for these young people to land, because they're all going to be here, then guess what? They're all going to leave. They're done. Because they communicate to each other so much. When things are going great, they say, you got to come over here. Talk to my mentor. Talk to my leader. And they can get you a position. Or they're going to say, I'm out of here. We're done. And they leave. So here's the statistic. Gallup (laughs) interviewed 27 million employees around the country for the last five years, they found 65% of them, which equals 17 million and 500,000 of them left their organizations because of toxicity in the leadership. So that just tells you going forward, HR people are always worried because they go after talent and then they, they massage them and then they, they hire them or they, they, they kind of, recruit them, and then they onboard them. And these young people, for the first six months, are not committed to an organization. Nine out of 10, not committed. Even though they've had all this, you know, onboarding. Expensive onboarding. Expensive. They want to see what kind of culture do they have? What kind Mm. of leadership do they have? Do I really want to stay here? I love this job. It's a great title, but I'm not committed. They're not for six months because of what you just said. Culture is toxic everywhere. Well, do, do we feel like 
you know, some of the pushback is, and I know, again, I, I always got to be careful that I say, I, everybody doesn't fit into an icebox, but but you hear baby boomers, and I don't know if that CEO, Tara, was a baby boomer, but but you hear, and even my generation, Generation X, you say, you know what, we got to stop coddling this younger generation. They're just soft, and they need to toughen up and and all of that. What What's your answer to that, Brooke? My answer is that you need to have a conversation with them. You need to sit down, you need to listen, you need to ask questions, you need to paraphrase, you need to summarize, you need to take the time to spend with these young people talking about where they're succeeding at, where they're failing, what's their issue. And these leaders aren't doing it. They're not doing it. So have you ever heard of the business roundtable? It's the top 200 CEOs of all the biggest brands around the planet. And they meet every single year for the past 47 years. Well, in 2020, for the first time ever, the Business Roundtable has decided that they're gonna be a culture-first thinking organization. Hmm. And this is something that these CEOs cannot ignore because what they're saying, essentially, is that we wanna give all we can to build the best culture possible going forward. And when we do, it's the first time ever that the Business Roundtable has supported culture-first thinking. And so they've designated 2021 as the culture-first decade. Do you think that's that's because of all of the remote work and the burnout and the uncertainty of the pandemic that has led well, to a lot? No, you think it's this just all happened time. before ah, the pandemic. November, gotcha. November of 2019. And then the article came out in early March, 2020, because they met. And the leader of the group is Jamie Dimon from JP Morgan, Mary Barra from General Motors, and Alex Gorski, the CEO of Johnson & Johnson. And they have a new corporate purpose. And 2021 is a new culture first decade. Folks, these senior level people, most successful CEOs, get it now. They finally get it. It's not about shareholders. It's not about stock value. Uh-uh. It's about culture. And so, guess what company? I think of an example. What's the best company out there for culture? Do you know? <laughs> Come on. You know them. I was going to say. Yeah, you go yeah. to their facility and they have signs on the wall everywhere that says um, culture eats strategy for breakfast. <laughs> Now you got me really thinking. Who is it? I would guess Google, but uh, you know. No. It's Apple Computer. Really? Apple. I would not have guessed and Apple. So the no. best example that I can give you about culture and what Apple has done that no one has done is amazing. They built the Apple Store. So you got little kids in there that are eight or nine years old looking at the same technology, getting the same type of service as people 20, 40, 60 years older than them. But they're all in one place, feeling the message, feeling the passion, looking at the technology together. It's brilliant. Why don't we do that? Why don't other stores do that? Why don't we have that in other industries? It's always a fair question, right? We see there, there's examples out there of people that are doing it right. Why don't all the other ones say, let's do it like them? I, I don't ever get why that happens. Let me ask you this, Brooke, because this is a question I get sometimes as a coach. If I, I agree with you, culture is incredibly powerful. 
if done properly. But what happens when it goes south? You know, a lot of the questions I get are, how do we fix a toxic culture? Is it, I don't know if that's a simple answer, but what what would be your thoughts on how do we turn the ship around? How do we turn the aircraft carrier that's going in the wrong direction? Well, yeah, it, it, it all starts with the leadership, as I think you would agree. It starts there. That's where it has to start. That's where we have to see, do these leaders have these six different characteristics that are listed in this guy's article? Because if they do, they're going to have a long struggle ahead. But they're also losing employees. And what's really interesting, and Terry, you brought this up earlier, how do you have a fix a culture when you're working remotely? Hmm. Oh, it's even more difficult now. Correct. 100%. I get that question all the time. How no. do we instill culture and motivation? No. We're, over, not, we're, on not, we're not connecting here. Yeah. yeah. We're not. It's all up here with your eyes and maybe your ears, but it's not here. And that's where I think we're, we're, we're missing the boat. But I also feel that there's too much pressure on top level leaders and they're not taking the time to spend with these employees, regardless of what job they're doing, to really listen to what they're what what's going on there. Do you think mental health is going to take such a toll with this, you know, even if the pandemic ended tomorrow? That's still a pretty lengthy time in our history to go through such a thing. Do you think mental health will take such a toll that leaders and businesses will have absolutely no choice but to pivot and start caring more about their people? I think I think it's already happened. Okay. I think we're seeing it you know, day after day, we get new reports. And now the, the pandemic is going in the opposite direction. And all these states are opening up, we got to get our restaurants back and doing this. And this pandemic is going off with different variations. I'm a little bit worried about the future. But I think it's impacting them right now. But the company that learned the most or the CEOs or leaders that learned the most during 2020, they got to take that and now apply it in 2021. Because we will get to herd immunity. We will get there at some point. But they've got to take everything they've learned, put it into 2021 so that 2022 could be the best year ever going forward. And what, is, what do you think that looks like? What is the landscape of, I, I get tired of saying the new normal, but you know, I, I've seen reports of they're polling employees right now and saying how many days, because people kind of, there's some things they like about being at home, working from home. And so they're asking them, how many days would you like to work in the office? And what I've seen in the research is roughly two days a week, they want to be in the office. So that means three days, we're going to be working from home. Is that the future? And then the next question is, how do we have that culture if we only go in two days a week? Can we establish a strong culture with only seeing our our coworkers less sparingly? I think the leadership needs to give that or have the flexibility Going forward, the flexibility for work. They want to work. Some of these people want to work from 11 p.m. to 4 a.m. That's when they're most productive. Okay, great. I want to work on Saturday and Sunday nights. And they want to take Wednesday and Tuesdays off. Okay. As long as they get their work done and they can work it in this in this hybrid pattern, if you will, and then you switch off the people who work one week and do another week, and then you start to overlap the people in the office you start to build congruency over time. But there has to be a plan. There has to be a leader. There has to be a process to this. 
Because if you do it right, I think you're going to come out of this even stronger than ever before. But when we get rid of this pandemic, we may never get rid of virtual working. You know, it's going to be here because it's so effective. Yeah, right? I, I feel like it's not going away. There's going to be it's an element not. of this as we go forward. And I, I just wonder what it's going to look like. If I was the CEO of a company, I think I would agree with you. Be flexible. I think it's going to take some experimentation of, of saying, let's see what's going to work and let's, let's try some things. Because I don't know if anybody has good answers of, okay, this is what we're going to do. And this is, we know this is going to work. I don't know if anybody knows that right now. Yeah, you got to try different things. But I think if you have flexibility of work, you're, you're, you're working with video, you're listening to their voice, you're seeing their emotions, you're not talking on the phone, you got video. You, you got to use that. And then you build virtual communities. You know, we've got our morning yoga class with, that's virtual. We've got our book club that meets at noon. We have lunch. We talk about the book. And you've got virtual communities within your organization that have been put together by some of your best staff. And then the last thing is you've developed a level of trust and the key word here and vulnerability. The leadership shows vulnerability in this situation, which allows for these people to be responsible, to be reliable, and they, they say thank you for doing that. And some, some CEOs, leaders, don't have that vulnerability. They think it might be a sign of weakness. I think they should rethink that. Tell us more about that because, you know, vulnerability is obviously a huge word that comes up a lot, especially with CEOs in the last, I'd say, five to 10 years. What do you mean when you say vulnerability, leaders need it? What does that physically look like to a leader that's going, what do you mean I need to be vulnerable? What does that simple. even look like? Let's keep it simple. You want to build a performance culture or do you want to build a growth culture? The Harvard Business Review has a great article about the difference between the two. And when you think about a growth culture, you think about having, first of all, a safe environment for these people, whether they're working at home or at the office, but it's safe so they can succeed or fail or be challenged and feel safe, right? Okay, the second thing is, is that they're always on a continuous learning curve. They're always learning from things, learning from other people, learning from different generations, what people learned at other companies and they, they bring it in and they mix it all up and they really learn together and they continually learn regardless of the generation you're with. And then the last piece was giving consistent feedback. Once you start there, building a growth, a growth uh, culture, that is going to foster a lot more trust and a lot more vulnerability versus performance where either you succeed or you fail and you're out. Well, you're talking about a lot of good stuff when it comes to culture and how uh, the different generations can talk and communicate, work together. I know this is what you do for a living. How do, if someone's listening and they're like, how do I sign up? How do I get involved? I need your help, Brooke. Where do they go? How do they get a hold of you? I would love for them to send me an email or go to my website or uh, www.brookchestnut.com. I've got some videos. But I've also got examples and stories and things like that. But I'd like to sit down with them because every situation, every industry is different. And I believe if the Rotary Group is right, that three out of every four workers in just four years are going to be from millennial and Gen Z, you've got to put them in a position so they can grow into that, into that leadership role going forward. 
because Xers and boomers are not going to be around. They're not. That's so depressing. Am I not going to be around? Where am I going? I don't know. But then, Get out of here, Ron. Then, if you want to go farther, deeper, there's another generation after Gen Z called Generation Alpha. Oh, I don't know oh. much about Alpha yet. Generation Alpha, that's my granddaughter. Nice. She's only five. But I'm telling you. What are, what are they going to be like? Do we yeah, know? Yeah, no kidding. Oh, 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 oh my God. I have no idea. Okay. It's going to be an interesting thing. But my whole point is that it's not that we need to coddle or we need or stop coddling these millennials or Gen Zers, as some leaders were saying, you were saying that earlier, Ron, Mm -hmm. you know, they got to toughen up. We got to make them tougher. You know what, Mr. Mr. Leader, Mr. CEO, I think you need to become a better listener when it's time to have a conversation with them. Because the more conversations we have, the better off we're going to be in the long term. Yeah. And I would say, Mr. CEO, this is going to impact your bottom line. You know, I, I always get this, this, you know, how's this going to impact my bottom line? Well, I can tell you, it will impact your bottom line if you can't keep good talent. If that's the only language that they speak is dollar signs. There's an argument for that as well. So well, it's, it's published, though. It's published. Toxicity in corporate America is costing us a third of a trillion dollars Jeez. in revenue. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that should get anybody's attention. And certainly uh-huh. every CEO should be paying attention. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah they should. Because it's not All getting right. any better. So yeah. I hope that's helped. I hope that I've given you some, you know, some, some, some things to look at, to think about. Or I'm hoping yes, it's impacting yes. the audience. Definitely. You know, Jared and I work with young people. So, I mean, we're, it's kind of an interesting kind of dynamic that we're in because we work with young people, but we're also, you know, I I don't like to use the word old, but we're older. And so, yeah, we get to see all those dynamics. So let's, let's pivot and we could keep going probably all day long, but let's pivot to the last question. And as, as everybody knows by now, we're doing a new question where we ask, our guests, what's their greatest failure? And they can define that any way they want, but what's your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? I believe my children called me out on this after my open heart surgery. Did you know I had open heart surgery? I did know that. I did not. Yeah, 14 years ago, my aortic valve stopped working. And so I had to get it replaced. And it was supposed to last for 20 years but it didn't. I had to get that valve replaced again on December the 9th of 2019. And so we did that. And my daughters were there in the hospital waiting for me. And after my operation, five and a half hours, I'm still groggy, but I went into the ICU unit and we were met by a nurse. And this nurse told my daughters and me, it's not about what we do or how we do it, but it's why we do this. And she went through all this stuff. And for some miraculous reason, I stabilized overnight and went into my hospital room the next day. And for the next three days, I was meeting with dietitians, personal therapists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, blah, 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 blah. My daughters are watching me have basically long talks, making notes, asking questions, doing all of this work to understand how to recover from this surgery as well as possible. 
And what happened is after all those people left, my daughters come over to me and they go, dad, when did you become so chill? <laughs> and I go, what do you mean? Dad, we have been watching you these last three days with all these specialists and you are so focused and so driven to ask questions, to make notes, to, to have examples, all these things. Dad, you never did that with us when we were growing up. You never took the time to, to listen to us, to hear our stories. You were always in a hurry. You were always running around doing this, doing that. And you never gave us that listening that I am seeing now, Dad. And when they told me that, it, it was very emotional. And I feel like that was one thing that I did not do well when I was raising my children in Colorado Springs. And one of the reasons, one of the things that happened to me seven years ago, I joined this thing, this group called Toastmasters because I wanted to be a better speaker. I want to be a better presenter. And over the course of the seven years, maybe five years into it, the most valuable lesson I learned in Toastmasters is I have become a better listener. And that has paid the most dividends with my loved ones, with my families, with my business associates, with all the people I just meet on the street. I zip it up and I listen a lot more. And my daughter saw it. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then... Join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.